0: Welcome to the Keon Sports Podcast. Our guest today, legend from the 1980s and 90s WWF tag team scene, the Bushwhackers. It is Luke Williams. Put your feet up, grab something cold to drink, sit back and relax. It's now time for the Keon Sports Podcast. Without any further ado, here is Luke Williams. Welcome back to the Keon Sports Podcast. Today our guest, Luke Williams. All of the world-famous Bushwhackers, very excited to have him. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Vince McKee, and without any further ado, let's get Luke to the phone. All right, thank you again for joining us here with Key on Sports. On the line with us today, Bushwhacker Luke of, well, the famous Bushwhackers. How are you, sir? Oh,
1: good day, mate, and it's great to be on your show, Key on Sports. Looking forward to it, mate.
0: Oh, I appreciate that very much. We're happy to have you. Um, so I wanted to start off and asking you about your tag team partner, Butch Miller. You guys had an unbelievable chemistry, teaming together for all those years. Why do you feel like the chemistry was so good between the two of you? Chemistry,
1: I, I don't know. We, were born, we come from a little country down under, and and things are different down there. In the uh, in the sixties, you know. People were very close when you got to know somebody, you know, you became like brothers and that, and which Butch and me became like that, even though we're, we're cousins or, you know, as we sold ourselves as cousins, and that, um, we just became so close and that, and everybody thought we were brothers, because we looked similar.
0: Yeah, you guys were very similar, had an unbelievable chemistry, definitely a fan favorite, but, you know, before, before...
1: We went all those years, mate, without them. Um, we never broke up, or anything. Through the years, a lot of tag teams uh, after so many years break up, but we were together, you know, until two oh two. That's when Butch took sick, and that, and uh, you know, we were together. I'm talking about together, you know, not that we shared the same room when we we're on the road, but in the in the early stages, we did in the um, in the in the sixties and seventies. And, um, up to about 80, we, uh, on the road all the time, we shared the same hotel room and that, but, uh, so we never had any problems with each other.
0: Wow, that's tremendous. Now, a lot of people, everybody, you know, wants to talk about the WEF days, obviously that was the biggest point of fame was the WEF, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but before we do, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your time in the UWF. Now the UWF had a lot of talent in it, a lot of you know old, uh, legendary WWF guys as well. You were, you and uh, Butch were there for a bit in the UWF. What are some of your memories of working, you know, in the UWF with uh, Mitch Abrams or Herb Abrams? And also, really, you know, why do you think it never really hit the big time? No,
1: my, Herb Abrams didn't. The UW, UWF was owned by. Was owned by the guy in um, down down in uh boy you, Oklahoma. Bill Watts.
0: Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. It was ran by. Yep.
1: I was never with that group of Herb Abram. I was with the the the, the, the big company out of who ran all who um, ran um, all those territories right from New Orleans right up to St Louis. That's Bill right. Watts ran a big a big area and all the stars. You know, um, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Junk Dog, One Man Gang, um, Bam Bam Virgilow, uh, they all came, they, you know, they all came from Bull, Jake the Snake, Teddy Biasi. They all went to WWF, but they all come from UWF. Um,
0: <laughs> Bull Watchers territory. Right, and it was an incredible company, as you said, that you know, they traveled all down south there. Why do you think they they eventually had everybody leave for the WWF? Thank you, pardon mate. Why do you feel like everybody left for the WWF? Left, left the UWF for the WWF because well, it was big.
1: Vince, when, when Vince, Vince Junior took over from his dad, he went around the country and stole all the top talent from all the uh, major territories. That's why they all sort of closed up, you know, by by eighty eight. There was only uh, eighty-eight. Most of them were closed, apart from NWA Crockett. You know, Crockett had bought out UWF from UWF from um, Bill Watts in, in eighty-seven, and um, yeah, so they were there. all the smaller territories are closed because Vince had stolen all the top ter- uh, all the top talent. He, he actually started in Minnesota first. He went to Vern Gagne's AWA. It took Bobby Heenan, Mean Gene, Hulk Hogan, um, the world's Strongest Man, Ken Patera, you uh, know Jesse Ventura. Should he just he cleaned out that place first?
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. National expansion for Vince Jr. is really what put the WWF on the map for good and kind of knocked everybody out. And that's what brings you guys. You know, after two plus decades, you guys were already in the business two decades, a long time. When you you show up in the WWF, and you guys were villains. The Sheep Herders were nationally known as a, a villainous team, but when you arrived in the WWF, they turned you babyface, and Coma almost made you guys comedic, like, you know, a funny babyface type role. Whose idea was it to turn you guys babyface, and who came up with the whole gimmick?
1: Well, Vince, when we, you know, before we went out there, we were known as ha- Hardcore before Hardcore became a name brand. We were doing some from, from 1980... You know, 79, we were doing barbed wire cage matches, fire matches, you know, boot camp matches. We were all bloody matches, and we worked a lot of them in South America too. As you know, the Latins love blood and guts. And anyhow, so when Fitz called us up there, and that, um, believe it or not, we were in Columbus, Ohio, in the Gold's Gym. And I went out to pick up my messages on the phone. Those days, there was no cell phones. This was '88, and um, there's a voicemail there. And there, and it, it says it was, please call me, Pat pa, 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 here. Please call me. Who the hell's Pat? <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure, it was Pat, Pat, Pat Patterson. Yep. So I called him, and he was in he he was in he was in, he was in a room with Vincent that. So they, he put me over to Vince and he said, G'day Kiwis, g'day Kiwi. And um, he says, yeah, well, we're interested in you. Can you come, if you've got time, can you come up and see us? And that's how it all started. He told me there would be tickets at home. And so anyhow, we got up there and um in his this and that. And the first thing he says. You know the introduction, BS, and was sitting at his desk. He says, "I'd like to bring you in as the good guys," and, and and of course Butch hopped up on his desk and put his nose about it. It wouldn't even be a foot from this. He says, "If you can make these faces, good guys, go for it." And he says, "Well, look at my top baby faces. They haven't got the cutest mugs: Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Jake the Snake." Axel Jim Duggan. And when you, when you look at their heads, they're not the prettiest group. And, <laughs> uh, and, um, and um, he said, damn, we've got the prettiest kisses. You know, so, and of course I piped up and I said, you know, why not bring this in his heels and turn his baby faces? And of course, you don't tell Caesar what to do. <laughs> and that was the first first thing line I learned straight away he says know I, I don't do it that way. I'm going to bring you in do, a, do do two months of videos or months of videos you know bring you in up every week and we'll, we'll shoot about four vignettes and then each week and um, for a month and I'll run them on all their programs and that was it, that was it and when we got home after that meeting with Vince, the next day, or the two days later, Butch calls me up. He says, Shit, "I've got a bloody um, contract here, but it's for the Bushwhackers, and he must have sent it to the wrong people." <laughs> and I says, "No, no, to Butch. He wants to um, own us, you know, for merchandise sake. Yep. You know, when he owns the name for merchandise sake, he only has to pay you what he wants. What he." Uh, what he wants to pay you. You know what I mean? One or two percent. One percent. If you own the name, he takes the name. Well, he, you know, he has to pay you more because he's using your name.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Because guys, when he takes them, well, like the Road Warriors, or no, he changed the Legion of Doom. But um, he changed them to Legion of Doom. But, you know, if he, he takes the name, he was paying them five percent. you know, on the merchandise. You know, the, on the... Uh, on the, on the net of the merchandise. Well, well when you um, when he owns the name, he only pays you one percent. But you and me were only getting a half a percent each on all the merchandise.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then
1: now, um, now, 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 you see, how do we develop the character? Well, a bit said to us, I want you to be between um, the moon dogs and the Sheep Herders, because baby faces. And when we got back, Butch said to us, well, the Moondogs have been on USA Network for five years, and we've been on um, NWA networks since 79. You know, Ted Turner, he had the NWA on, you know, on Turner's network, which was TBS and TNT. And Butch said, well, we've been on and off that from 79 right to 88. We were working for Ted Turner at the time, uh, not for Ted Turner, for the Crockets, NWA, and that, and um, he said, "Let's think of something different." And not, we know when we were heels, the bad guys. When we went outside the ring, we always threw our arms up and at the crowd and went whoa yay just to scare them. And Butch says, "Hey, let's turn that around. Let's swing our arms." Going to the going to the ring like marching, and I bit straight away. And I says, my shoulders are are uh, screwed up. I can't. And he said to me, Do you want to make money? <laughs> <laughs> and that was it, you know. And then and then of course the the head uh, the head kissing later, the head licking later came on. But I always put my hand on the guy's head or the woman's head and licked the back of my hand. People wouldn't notice that because I did it so fast. But um, that's how we started that. And you know, to, to this day, we were never remembered from our wrestling or anything like that. Well, they knew we were comical, but um, we were remembered from, from that arm—you know, the arm swinger. As Jesse Ventura would say, "Here comes the marching morons."
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know.
1: That's what I remembered, mate. And, you know, And I've been remembered right up to the... Uh, I got a plug every year from 92 right up to 218, you know, and the Royal Rumble when they, you know, I marched out, earthquake got me through, threw me out the other side. I was in the ring for maybe, oh, 15 seconds, I think. And then an earthquake threw me out the other side and um, I marched back. And Vince used that all the, you know in the pre-Royal Rumble promotion. That was seen right up to 2018 every year.
0: Yeah, it, and you know that's one of the most famous Royal Rumble moments of all time. I wanted to ask you too. When you and Butch got there, the WWF tag team scene was the best it's ever been. Everybody remembers those days with the Hart Foundation and Demolition and Strike Force, uh, the Brain Busters, the Rougeau Brothers, and obviously the Bushwhackers on and on down the line. Why was it? Why was it so good?
1: And we had the other two guys that you never mentioned, the Rockers, who got fired three times, <laughs> and, but they were so good, ba- baby faces, and Vince loved them because you know, they were a big fan following. That he bought them back, but he fired them three times, I think, before before ninety one or ninety. Uh,
0: Will will the tag team scene ever be that good again? I mean, that was something amazing. You guys were part of probably the greatest tag team scene of all time.
1: Yeah, well, our first team we were with was the Rougeos. We were put with the Rougeos for about nine or like six months, yep. and then, of course is um, Raymond was going to leave, so they they put us over everywhere the Rougeos, and then around the country, and then the next the next team. With the Russians. And this is funny, mate. We'd march out, even in, our, even in all the countries overseas, and everyone would, when we would, they would cheer for us. USA, USA. <laughs> and here's guys, two guys from down under, even in England, which is a British, uh, which New Zealand is a British country, that still chime USA.
0: That's hilarious. Now, you know, one of the funny things you guys did, and you, you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the interview, some of the um, you know, but really, one of my favorite things growing up as a fan was the Coliseum Home videotapes that they used to do. You did some of the funniest things with guys uh, like Lord Alfred Hayes and also Mean Gene Oakland. What was it like to work with Mean Gene Oakland and do some of those skits? Uh,
1: my Mean Gene was the best. I'm just going to jump jump forward for a second doing an interview with him, and if you had a a dead spot or anything, Mean Gene was right there, came in and led you on, fed you more to say and put you back on the track. Mean Gene was the best, mate. You know what I mean? Especially when doing interviews and that. Uh, And, um, whatever. You know, promos, any kind of promo. And, um, well, he was, Mean Gene was a lot of fun. The best one was up in, um, Arizona, up in the mountains, Tucson. When we did the bushwhacker shack, and we did bushwhacker buzzing and Mean Jean turned into a bushwhacker.
0: Yep.
1: We, we had a, an old grill and that, uh, and that old shack up in the hills. That was one of the best. Oh. I still laugh at that. Mean Gene knew. Hey, he knew how to work into these things. He was great. And and and, and uh, Lord Alfred Hayes, God bless him. I oh, god bless them both That alfred hayes was great too mate i remember doing the electrical one we were doing home improvements yep. and we went in the wall and hit an electrical cord <laughs> and, and of course you lord alfred used you, you know showed that he was getting electrical shock because they sped it up in the video it was so funny
0: oh it's one of the all-time best fans out there i want to encourage you to go watch it on coliseum home video it's also on the wwe network it's called smack em 'em. if you look up smack em 'em, the the whole thing you know between each match they show the bushwhackers with lord alfred hayes they're trying to put together this house it's absolutely hysterical you also have uh yokozunos on that videotape at a a hibachi restaurant eating all kinds of food it's a blast
1: and get made. Here's another one. The one where we went to buy um, a present for our mother's birthday, and we went to uh, uh, what do they call shops now where they sell, uh, you know, toys, sexual toys, and all yes. that. Yep. What are those shops called?
0: Uh, the Ambiance or uh, places like that. Absolutely. I know what you mean.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we, we chose <laughs> a negligee, if and our mum was 280 pounds. <laughs> and it was a scene through, a butcher's got his head in the, look at me, he says, and he's got, he's got his head in between it, inside and he says, you know, Mama looked nice in this, you know, and, and we'd already told the people she's 280 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that, that was the best.
0: You know, I gotta ask you too, you mentioned to work with the Rougeau brothers, and you're right, you guys, the first six to nine months with the Rougeau brothers, <laughs> But the biggest win you really ever had, a big one, was at WrestleMania Five. In fact, it was the only time you guys appeared on the main card of a WrestleMania. I know you fought at WrestleMania Nine on the on the dark end of the the pay-per-view in Nevada. But at WrestleMania Five, what did it mean for you guys in, in your first big pay-per-view with the WF to go over as winners?
1: Uh, that was, mate. Now that was in Trump Plaza. Is that what you're
0: talking about? Yeah. So the one you won was at WrestleMania Five, was in Trump Plaza. The only other time you guys were on a, another WrestleMania was many years later at WrestleMania Nine in Las Vegas, Nevada. But the big one was WrestleMania Five. You guys were on the main card when you beat the Rujos. How did that feel to get such a big win? You know, so early on with the company on, on a big stage like WrestleMania? Oh,
1: nice. To be on the, to be on the the biggest pay per view in the world at the time was insane. You know. I'm not talking about um, the building, the capacity of people watching it live, but being on a pay-per-view that's big around the world. At that time, the sales for pay-per-views was insane. You know, Vince's pay-per-views was insane. And we're in Trump Plaza. Now, the the audience there wasn't a um, a hardcore wrestling audience. It was who was who in show business. We were at Trump Plaza, and all the film stars were in the front row. And, you know, in, in the first three or four rows, it was who was who in show business. Yeah. It was drawing that sort of people at the time. And everyone was in, uh, Everyone was all dressed up in collars and ties. And, you know, it was a different kind of crowd. People had come there to gamble, and it was, and to be known and be seen on, on a pay per view. So that's what the. I think that Trump Plaza, the whole eight thousand. Yep. You know, it wasn't. Yes. It wasn't a big building, but the, the the show was bought by Trump. You know, Vince and Trump have got a long relationship, and Vince got the pay per view. Trump just got the door sales, and of course he got the people in his hotel and, to gamble. Of course, that's why he, this was the second pay per view he'd done there. He did the year before there too.
0: Later on in that same year, in 1989, you were part. You and Butch were part of one of the greatest tag teams in the Survivor Series history with Rowdy Piper and Jimmy Superfly Snuka as your teammates. What was it like to team up with Rowdy Rowdy Piper and Superfly Jimmy Snuka for that Survivor Series pay-per-view?
1: Man, well, this is good. Roddy was one of the oldest, apart from Honky Tonk, man, Roddy was the longest... Uh, person, Dutch Mantell, Roddy Piper, and Hockey Talk, Man were the longest people i would known in, in North America. You know, who in, in, in USA. Roddy, Roddy I met in the um, mid to late 90s and I've worked uh, mid to late 70s and I worked against him and Rick Martel for 14 months consecutively. I'm talking about we had 20, uh, this was in Northwest Championship wrestling and uh, we had 22 exec- consecutive sellouts in a row there. And I didn't know this till what he told me about three months before he died because he, he was fr- he was from Portland, Oregon and the main town in that territory was Portland. And of course Jimmy Snooker was there too. He did, he was there when we arrived there, and he just left. He left after we arrived, and he went down to Crockett's in North Carolina. And when we left the Northwest Championship Wrestling in in in, in 1980, we were we, our, our next territory was the the headquarters for NWA, and Jimmy Snooker was the champion down there with um, Ray Stevens. They were the world champions, and. Um, a week after we were there, we were the Mid-Atlantic champions. They put the the other straps on us. And think it was two weeks later. So we travel with Jimmy. We travel with Jimmy all the time. You see, he he's from the South Pacific. We are too. New Zealand is the southern part of the South Pacific. Above us is, you know, Rarotonga, Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, all those islands. So we travel with Jimmy... Jimmy all the time. So these two guys were our brothers. You know, Roddy was, Roddy was part, we'd known Roddy all that time for 14 months, work with him every day. And that, and Jimmy, so it was so great to be in that, that, uh, tag, in that tag. Uh, it was an eight, yeah, it was a, an eight-man tag match, right? Yep.
0: Oh, it was an eight-man.
1: Survivor. Survivor Series?
0: Yeah, Survivor Series, and you guys faced off against the Rougeau Brothers, uh, Rick Rude and Mr. Perfect. So, definitely, a
1: what a, what a
0: unbelievable amount what a, of
1: legends. What a, what a, Rick, Rick Rude, he was a master. He didn't, have, he just had heat. You know what I mean? His gimmick, instant. Hey, he would get heat selling. You know, selling sauce punch. The people would hate him. And of course, you know, Mr. Perfect. He is good What a guy! God bless. God bless the most Hey. That whole team, which that whole team we're
0: talking about, is t- dead. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, no. four of them. Yeah.
1: No, they're no, not. They're the, the Rujo. What did you say? It was the Rouges,
0: right? Yeah. So, uh, both of your teammates, Roddy, Roddy Piper, and Jimmy Sugarfly, Fly have passed away. And then two of your opponents that night, Rude and Perfect, are both gone. It's sad to think. Now, I wanted to ask you um, this question. You know, I got a couple questions here, and I really, you know, would love your opinion on these. Um, in at WrestleMania six in the Toronto Sky Dome, you, know, you got sixty seven thousand people. It's a big deal. Vince McMahon, Vince Jr. made a really interesting decision to have Hulk Hogan lose for the first time on TV, get pinned fairly cleanly, and put the belt on Ultimate Warrior and make Ultimate Warrior the face of the company. How was that perceived by the boys in the back? How do you guys feel about a guy like Ultimate Warrior, who a lot of, a lot of people were not comfortable with? Being the new face of the company and having Hawk Hogan take a slight step down.
1: Well, the, the actual warrior, God bless him, he wasn't liked too much. You know, he was a chiropractor, and if anyone put, hurt themselves or, you know, put a disc out or anything, he wouldn't help them. Because he said that if I look after one, I'll be looking after the whole territory. So he, you know, <laughs> poor, <laughs> poor guy. What's, uh, what's his first name again? Jim. Jim, yeah. I'd known Jim from UWF, Bill Watts. He came in there and Bill Watts, um, you know, <laughs> that's another story. Let yeah, me tell you a little story about uh, UWF. But um, I saw him knowing him from there. And then, and, um, you know, I'd go, me and Butch got along with them well. But amongst the boys and then, you know, he hit Hercules Hernandez with a chair. Who, he got 67 stitches, you know. He, he was pretty careless in the ring. The clotheslines were on the jaw all the time. Rick Rude knocked him out in a Texas town because he clotheslined him on the jaw, and that, and, that, and he just got so pissed off with him, so he wasn't right. But Vince and his, you know, Vince was a bodybuilding freak, as we all know. Look at Vince's body, and that and um, I think his wife liked him too. So they went with they wanted to go with Jim halloway and um, they did, and uh, believe it or not, Terry Terry's often told me Hulk's often told me the warrior wanted to go home after seven or six minutes. Ooh. And Terry says no. He, the warrior was blowing up and freaking out, and um, th- I think they did about twenty minutes. Yeah. And the match, and it was a good match. You know, he just he just had ter- Hulk had to cool him down, and um, were, believe it or not. The people border, and, and that was a great match for two for two baby faces.
0: It's it's one of the greatest matches of all time, you know. Right, right around that same time as well, Dusty Rhodes came in. Um, Dusty Rhodes showed up in maybe like you know six or seven months after you guys arrived, and Dusty Rhodes at that point was a he was already a legend from the NWA. You know his time with Crockett, his time down in Florida. He was such a big name, and why do you think? You know, Vince Jr. and Pat Patterson and the creative team decided to. They didn't squash them, but also they, they put them in polka dots. Um, they gave him a manager that didn't fit. Nothing seemed to work.
1: That's a, that's easy. Dusty was the booker for NWA. Hello?
0: Yes, sir. I'm still here.
1: Yeah, Dusty was the booker for NWA. And for, you know, for the last six years, you know, some. Um, 84, I think, to 88 or, or 89, and um, he'd knocked WWF, you know, the opposition. He, he would be told by the other promotion to, um, by the Crockett's, that uh, WWE's, uh, you know, been stealing our talent. They've taken Steamboat, they've taken a lot of talent, you know, from Scientist Slaughter, from from NWA. So that, 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 they were opposition. And of course, Dusty was a booker for them. So he had to sort of, you know, um, be a bit rough about WWE or WWF at the time. So when they brought him in, of course, they put the polka dots on him. They tried to make a bit of a joke from him, but it actually backfired. Dusty got over. They gave him the black woman from uh, from St. Louis. I forget her name. Sapphire. Yeah, but the people loved her. He was the the common man, the plumber, the common man with the with the black gun, the girl in the corner, you know, and she you know she was heavy and, and that that but the, Dusty knew how to get over. Being be, hey, he got himself over. He was a booker in Florida. He was a he got himself over stronger Florida. He was a booker in the NWA got himself over all over the south and, you know, up the, Well, uh, TBS wasn't so strong up north at the time, but um, he got himself over everywhere he
0: went. You know, I wanted to ask you, too, you touched on it. One of the most famous moments in Royal Rumble history is when you were in the ring for four seconds, when you whacked your way in, earthquake took you by the pants and threw you out. Like you said, they showed that all the way through 2018, a long time. When did you find out about that? Did you know about that weeks ahead of time? Or did, when you got to the arena, they said, hey, you're going to be out there for four seconds. And what goes through your mind? Because you're traveling.
1: That came up to me. <laughs> me, right before. You know, about um, ten minutes before it. You know, we all had our, our spots where we go out on the sheet. You know, mm-hmm. on the running speed and that. And that come up, he says, I want you to march up to the ring and um, Earthquake's going to get you there, take you across the other side, dump you out, and you just keep doing what you do, you know, and um, he's going to dump you out, and I don't know whether he told me to keep marching or not, but of course, I knowing it's our gimmick, and of course, I didn't get hurt in the ring, I just got, when I got into the ring, Earthquake took me to the other side, out, over the top, I landed on my feet, and I just kept marching.
0: That's excellent.
1: Never like the, the rabbit. I kept on. I kept on marching, mate.
0: <laughs> I love
1: it. And that, was, and that was notorious right up to um, <laughs> right up right up to 280. Oh yeah. Vince stopped using using that and 280, which pissed me off. Because I was seen every year from 92 <laughs> to
0: two eighty. Yes, you were. You know, in your time with the WWF, it's the greatest time ever. I don't think anybody anybody would ever tell you different. It's one of the greatest eras of all time. The era that you were a part of with the WWF. You know, what was probably one of your favorite moments or one of the craziest things you saw happen on the road? Because a lot of, you know, the fans, we see what happens in the ring, but... <laughs> We don't get to know what happens on the road or any of the backstage drama. What do you think was one of the crazier things you've ever seen?
1: Well, there's a lot of wild things I can't really mention on, <laughs> uh, on this because it's too wild. But um, the, the Warrior and, and um, Kerry Von Erich with the... Uh, now this is just third party. I didn't see it. But the limousine driver taking them back to San Francisco from Sacramento. They were using GHP at the time, it was legal. You know, you used to take it, you're supposed to take it before you went to bed at night to burn fat and that, but if you, if you put carbs on it, it was like Valium. It was like a lot of Valium or, you know, um, muscle relax, it, 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 it um, gave you a good high, right? Mm-hmm. So the limousine driver, they two were taking him back in the limousine when they left Sacramento, and the limousine driver said, "What's that?" And uh, he said, "I've done everything from angel dust, coke. Well, you know, name the drugs. I don't want to go any more." And that, uh, so blah blah blah. So they said, "Well, give us your water. You can put a bit of water in a cup, and they put him a spoon." And Fifteen minutes later, he was swerving on the road, so they told him to pull over, and that, and that. Uh, they pulled him out of the driver's seat and jammed him in the back. And jammed him in the back seat. They had job jamming him in because he was so, so effed up. And they jammed, And they drove the limo back to um, San Francisco. Wow. And that's not. That's not. That's not at all. They found out where the boss lived. They called on the on the, um, the radio on in, in the car where the owner lived, and they found out. And they drove around to his place. They pulled this kid out, who was in his in his suit and that, you know, um, driver's suit, and put him on, put him on the front lawn. It it pooed his pants, shit his pants, <laughs> and they dumped him on the front. They dumped him on the front lawn there, and um, and they drove uh, drove that night, drove back to the hotel, and that. And the next morning they left the limo at the airport. Of course, Vince got the call and that, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and they had to tell the office that they left the car in the airport. The guy woke up and saw the guy on his lawn, and I don't know what happened, whether he really got fired or whatever.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. What was...
1: That's crazy. I'd love to video that, the guy coming out of his front door in the morning to see one of his employees. on <laughs> the front yard on the front lawn with his pants full of poo.
0: <laughs> I can't even imagine.
1: We've done 30
0: minutes. Yeah, uh, no, I, uh, No, no problem. Can we
1: start?
0: So, um, what was, uh, what was the, your favorite venue or city that you ever worked in?
1: Favorite venue, okay, with? I got two, mate. Of course, um, the biggest one was the, um, 1992 SummerSlam, was it 91?
0: No, 92 at Wembley Stadium.
1: Wembley Stadium. Now this was the last show in that stadium. They pulled it down after that and built the new one, which is smaller. It was 94,600. And you know, to to fill that arena up, it takes time. It takes about two hours. People start coming in two hours. So people have been sitting around inside for a long time and we were first match so they were dying to see something right yep. and here's the match axel jim duggan butcher me there was a whoa, a yay and a hole <laughs> we marched out the the aura in that building was big the, crowds were, the crowd was going nuts we were marching we went into the ring we went from one rope to another rope, doing our whoa. Bushwell, I'm doing EA, and is doing the whole, whole we could have done that the whole night the crowd, the noise you know how you listen to the soccer games in La- oh, in, sure. in England and in Europe and they're all singing well that's how it was mate, that's how the crowd was and then, then we started the match against the Mountie and the Nasty Boys and the match was like the noise at the start that noise never finished till the end of the match.
0: That's incredible.
1: It was, it was insane. And, um, you know, that I'll always remember that. Now, the other one was, the biggest highlight was in the, the mecca of sports entertainment. From sports and rock and roll and everything. MSG, Madison Square Garden. In the 80s. The last match was, uh, um, A battle royal. And and the last person to come out to the ring was Hulk Hogan. Well, when he came out to that ring, Butch could put his mouth in my ear and try to talk to me. I couldn't, I wouldn't have heard a word. I didn't hear a word. The hair on my arms was standing. That's how, you're all around that building, because the MSG has got great acoustics. Oh, you know, this was this was before it was remodeled too, but it was great. And then this was, I say, eighty nine or maybe, yeah, this was in eighty nine. And Hulkamania was running wild. WrestleMania was running wild. You know, the eighties was a wild time in WWF.
0: So, and,
1: uh, when Hulk came to that ring, the building exploded.
0: I have two questions left for you here, and I, I appreciate you taking the time. Two more questions to go, then we'll be all done for the day here. Um, a couple, you know, this happened a little bit after you left. You had mentioned, you know, earlier in, in the episode about Shawn Michaels. You were not there in 1997, that I know of, when the the world famous Montreal screw job happened. Looking at it and looking at the, you know, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels and Vince McMahon, were you surprised? When that went down, was that were you shocked by that, or do you feel like Vince McMahon did the right thing?
1: Yeah. I don't know, mate. I, here I'm on the fence. Here I'm on the fence. And, May I don't know the reasons behind it, mate. See? There's always reasons behind things. I know Brett was supposed to drop it, but he wanted to drop it the next... He wanted to drop it in the States. He didn't want to drop it in his own country. But they thought it would get more heat on Sean Michaels if he dropped it. Sean Michaels was a heel, right?
0: Right, big time.
1: And they, and they would get more heat on Sean if he dropped it. Brett dropped it in Canada. I think this was my way of thinking. You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. From an outside guy. And now I know I'd worked with Sean when he first started. You know, maybe maybe 84, I worked with Sean. And San, they brought him into San Antonio. I'd left, but I'd been the booker there. And at maybe 84, 85, and they brought him in, and I worked with him then, and I thought, this kid's going to make it. He was he was magic when he was young. You know what I mean?
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: That was 84, I think. And he um, was a baby face then. Now, I'd known Brett. I'd met Brett. In 1973, when I worked for his dad at Stampede, in 1973, and uh, he was a kid then. And then I worked, and I worked against Brett. I come back for six weeks later in 79, and I actually worked against Brett. He'd started six months or a year before, but I actually wrestled with his dad. Him, with his brother, and his dad at that time. So I'd known Brett for a long time, too. And Brett was a serious worker, you know, a real serious worker.
0: Last question for you here, and thank you again. We want to, you know, welcome you here anytime with Key on Sports. The last question of the day is the easiest, probably the easiest one I've asked you yet. How did it feel in 2015 to go into the WWE Hall of Fame?
1: <laughs> Butch always says I was a bit rude here, but when they called me up and told me Butch was down under at home, he went back to New Zealand in 92, in, in 202. When they called me up and said, I said to uh, Mark, to, to Mark, whatever, Karana, I said, about bloody time. <laughs> now, the funny part is, mate, when I went on social media, all the people, the northern people said, what the hell are they um, They putting the two clouds in television? A lot of people up north didn't know of our um earlier they thought in 88 we started late in life as two comedians you know the northern people
0: oh yeah they didn't know about the sheep herders
1: the way Trade us with all those all those um cartoons whack em, and you know as you said whack em and smack em, all those little m- many uh, videos we did, and that, that's what they seen us from. They never saw the blood and guts and that they didn't know that we started as a tag team in 1966. And, we, you know, Peter had worked, you know, Butch had worked with, the and myself, had worked with the Rock's grandfather in Australia and New Zealand. And, um, and, um, we'd worked against Stu Hart against Killer Kowalski. None of these people knew that. Killer Kowalski was selling out Madison Square Gardens in the 60s and 70s. You know, they didn't realise we'd wrestled these guys, you know, in the 60s. We, were, we used to go across to Australia and work for um, the American promoter, um, Barnett, Jim... James Barnett. He he was the guy that started WCW. Mm-hmm. He was the guy that got Ted Turner to put on uh, wrestling on the on the satellite. We worked against him, and he owned Australia at the time. WCW in Australia from '65 onwards. And Butch Jimmy me used to go over there and work against all the Americans, uh, Dewey Roberts the Missing leg. You know, uh, China, when I don't want to go through names. But the sheik, you know, the not 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 the iron sheik, the Sheik from Canada.
0: The original sheik. I
1: know. No, the Indian I mean, the Indian, um who was bigger than Japan, I forget.
0: Chief J. Strombo, Wahoo McDaniel. Huh? Chief J. Strombo or Wahoo McDaniel?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strombo. We worked to look against so, a lot of those guys they they brought down Jim Barnett brought down to Australia and that uh, so you know, we've been around, uh, and, that, and they didn't know that. It wasn't until we went in the Hall of Fame and we started mentioning the names that we'd worked with. The, you know, the rock Stand, we'd worked with them in New Zealand in the mid-'70s. We'd worked with them in Australia. We'd worked with them in the States. We actually dropped the belts to him in 19, uh, 1980, and we went, dropped the Mid-Atlantic belts to him and Dewey Robinson, um, you know, Rocky Johnson. We'd worked, uh, we'd worked with the loader guys. When we started telling the fans that, then they realized that we weren't you kids on the block. You know what I mean? We had mileage.
0: Oh, extreme. Well, I want to thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today. Do you have any last words for your fans before we let you go?
1: No, no, mate. just all the fans on your sports uh, uh, podcast. Check me out on Instagram. Facebook, Twitter, Bushwhacker Luke.
0: Awesome.
1: And my website is com for merchandise.
0: BushwackerLuke.com. I'm back
1: on the road, folks. I'm back on the road last week. I was in Rhode Island the week before in Tennessee. This week I'm in in, in in Green Bay. So keep a watch out to where I'm going to be in the future because I may be in your town and you'll still be able to come and see Bushwhacker Luke. Nelly's in the business for 60 years. Yeah, I I should just say, in a minute. Been in the business for 58 years, and I'm still in the ring. Come and see me.
0: Well, Luke, if you ever come to Cleveland, Ohio, you have a place to stay on Keon Sports. Sound good?
1: Okay, mate. Yeah, I work in Ohio a lot. The actual promoter I worked for a lot, Joe Pizzas, died last year. It was sad that I, was, I used to work around Ohio a lot.
0: Sounds good, sir. Thank you. And have a great
1: it. on your podcast, mate. Great speaking to you and all the fans out there. I'll give you a, a whoa and a yay. Love you guys.
0: Thank you. Have a good one. So that was Bushwhacker Luke of the world of famous Bushwhackers. For Keon Sports, I'm Vince McKee. Have a good day. Smack'em. Welcome.